Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast. Join Corbin and Alan, along with guest hosts, as they bring their love for the cinema to discuss films from every genre and decade. Learn about the history of the film, little-known facts, and insightful explorations while they enjoy discussing your favorite film. The curtain is rising and your podcast is starting. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your guide to the silver screen. Welcome back, listeners, to the 13th installment in our M. Night Shyamalan movie review series. Today we are reviewing Glass. This is your co-host, Corbin. And I'm Alan, and it's been quite the interesting journey getting here to Glass, which as of this recording is the most recent Shyamalan movie that has been released. That's absolutely right. It came out January 18th, 2019, which is weird to think it came out this year because that feels so long ago. It feels like it came out at the very least last year. Yeah, that's right. I didn't think when we were introducing this movie and get ready for us to record it. Now, this was back before I had to reschedule things. I was like, man, I didnn't realize that Glass was coming. I'd already come out at this point because I feel like it had come out like a long time ago for me. I didn't realize how soon that we would be that we'd be getting not only a new Shaman movie, but then we'd also be reviewing that. And of course, it is the third and seemingly final installment in the Unbreakable trilogy, if you will, which started all the way back with Unbreakable in the very early 2000s. Right. Surprise Split, which came out two years ago, was a secret sequel. And now this is supposedly capstoning the trilogy. We'll talk about that, whether we think this is the final installment, the final one. But if you haven't right. seen Unbreakable, I would say then some things in this movie probably won't make complete sense to you. And if you haven't seen Split as well, then there are things that won't make sense as well. And of course, we have reviewed Unbreakable and Split. So go ahead and check out our reviews for both of those films. And of course, this being the 13th installment, we have reviewed all of Shyamalan's previous films, even dating back to his very first student film, Praying with Anger, and his interesting look at a little Catholic schoolboy and the loss of his grandfather in Wide Awake. And I also did review Stuart Little. Uh, Shyamalan wrote the film. That's a written review. Right. All of that is linked in the description below. And while you're at it, go ahead and check out all of the links to our Facebook page or YouTube page, Twitter page. All of those links are very easy to find. Our official website where we have uh, great written reviews and also different insightful articles and guides as well. Um, and of course, Shyamalan wrote this film. Not not only did he direct it. Right. And that makes sense because not only is this a trilogy of movies now that we have here, um, and I believe I'm pretty sure he wrote both Unbreakable and yes. Split um, all by himself. And now we did note last time that uh, Split, I believe we mentioned this last time, but Split had already kind of been written around the time that Unbreakable um, had been released. There were scenes, the character of Ken Kevin Window Crumb was going to be in Unbreakable, but uh, the man, Shaman himself, decided to pull him out for balancing issues, but kept a lot of those scenes. So when he wrote Split, he already had a good chunk of it written for him. He decided to more or less just finish it up and make it a full length movie. So 
when that happened, when he actually wrote out and finished Split, he put in the ending with Bruce Willis and didn't really know exactly if it would actually become a sequel until I think about, uh, yeah, about a month after Split released in the theaters. That's when he got confirmation from both Disney and then also from Universal that they that they would be fine using the character of Dev- David Dunn from Unbreakable in a movie with uh, that's universally owned. Uh, was split and its character Kevin Window Crumb. So he actually wrote that ending and didn't actually know if there was going to be a sequel or not. Although from that time, it sounded like it would probably happen because he was on pretty good terms with Walt Disney because they did let him use David Dunn as a character at the end anyways. So at the time, it's kind of funny to think that at the time, they, there was no confirmation that there would be a sequel that would that would use both the characters from both movies um, but when he finished writing the movie Split. It's a little weird to think that Shyamalan, who is the creative mind behind all of these characters and story, doesn't own the characters. The companies that distributed the films own the rights to these characters. And that's something I don't right. think uh, we think about very often. We just think, oh, it's an M. Light Shyamalan movie. You can just do whatever you want with a sequel. It's like, well, no, there's a little bit more contractually involved and legally involved when you're making movies across different studios. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Marvel has had this kind of a thing for a long time, I think since really, especially since the beginning of the MCU. Notably, the X-Men have not been in any kind of Marvel Cinematic Universe movie. Up until about now, I think they're they're starting to integrate them into it because now Disney owns Fox, who owns the X-Men, right? So we don't often think uh, that, you know, characters are under copyright for a certain company all the time. It's usually maybe you think, oh, they're part of this director, but doesn't might not even be the case. Um, so yeah, it is kind of interesting to think that, uh, especially in Shyamalan's case, where some people may not even know that he jumped around for studios because they I mean they may not even track that kind of a thing. To think that it would be a bigger deal to have uh, the character of Unbreakable and Split from two different studios be together in the same movie. And usually studios won't lend out their characters unless they know it's going to be a profitable deal for them both ways. And most more recently, we saw this between Sony and Marvel concerning Spider-Man. So was this a profitable decision? Well, we had a budget of 20 million, which is a little bit interesting to me because this is a Blumhouse production, and typically Blumhouse productions don't get this big a budget mm. ever. We like last last week with Split, we saw a five to nine million dollar budget, but this week is twenty million dollars, which is significantly bit bigger. But it is under Universal um, and is under the Buena Vista International label, which is owned by Walt Disney. So I guess I can see that opening weekend forty million, which we did note a few times that usually you want to double or at least make back your budget opening weekend and hopefully double it by your the end of your theatrical run at 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 least and it doubled its budget opening weekend which to be fair isn't even really that big of a budget considering a lot of other movies so when it was all said and done domestically 111 million for an 134.3 to 135.9 million with a worldwide total of 245.3 million to 247 million dollars so that's some really good money considering the budget that we have and this seems to be Shyamalan's stride is having an open opening weekend of 40 million that was exactly how much money he made last time with split 
So it seems right. to be expected now. Shyamalan will hit that sweet spot of 40 million. As long as he keeps his budgets low like this, then that's very profitable for him. And then these domestic, foreign, and worldwide numbers aren't surprising because they're pretty much on track for the most part with last time. And Shyamalan seems to be hitting around that quarter of a million, or excuse me, quarter of a billion mark um, worldwide right. with uh, each of his previous films. So these aren't blockbuster numbers by any stretch of the imagination. But for a $20 million budget, and especially for Shyamalan, you can see he's progressively maintaining a very profitable track record, and which makes him more of a safe bet for producers to and studios to work with him in the future. Exactly. And even when it was released in the theater, um, it was number one for the first three weeks of its run, which is the exact same picture as what we saw last week with Split. It was number one for the first three weeks. So when it came out, uh, it was up against The Upside, which has already been for two weeks, Aquaman, which had been in for five weeks, Dragon Ball Super Broly, which is on its first week, and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which was in for its sixth week. So it came out with not much competition. No, and this is so smart because we knew how Split was a good film that worked out, and it came out, I, I believe it also came out in January. And then... Two years later, Glass comes out in January, and usually January is the garbage month, but if you know your film is going to be good and profitable, put it in January because it'll make right. a lot more money that way because it doesn't have that steep of competition. Right. And even then, the next week, it still stayed number one, and it's the same movies before Glass, The Upside, Aquaman, but a new movie called The Kid Who Would Be, what is that? The Kid Who Would Be King, it looks like. Yeah. Um which I haven't heard of until just now. Oh, that came out that week. And then the week after that, uh, looks like Miss Bala came out, uh, but came out number three. Still never. So number one for glass. So it wasn't until it's fourth week in the theater when it dropped down to number five, but that's also because Lego movie two came out. The men, what men want in cold pursuit were all in their first week. So mm. it did. It really it did really well. Mm. And it's in the this theatrical run, which is surprising, um, but not too surprising given how Split did also very well in the box office. I guarantee if this would have came out during the summer, like all of his previous films were like, you know, a few years back, it would have been crushed. I think it would have done better than some of his other movies, but it, it would mm -hmm. not have done this well. And the other yeah. thing that I noticed is um, Jake. James Newton Howard is not back doing the score. That's right. Yeah, the same composer as last time, Wes Dylan, Wes Dylan Thordson, who did the score for Split, is back again for this score with Glass, which is interesting because he is going to incorporate um, a lot of the themes used in Unbreakable uh, with in with the score that he made with Split. There's a lot of a lot of tracks in there where they use both the same time, the tracks from Split and the tracks from Unbreakable. Yeah, there's kind of this main theme where I, I basically just call it like keeping time where yeah. it's uh, most notably heard towards the, the climax at the end. We won't give that away. Um, that doesn't sound like anything James Newton Howard would compose. I do really like yeah. that, but that does seem to be more of a trend lately is uh, particularly I'm thinking of Dunkirk where that mm -hmm. didn't. I guess that brings up a whole another debate about what is a film score, 
but it's it's like almost like these like uh, soundscapes or this one was just like a repetitious sound essentially right yeah there is a notable difference um with how james newton howard scores a movie and how this new composer that we're seeing now west dylan thordson scores a movie there's a very very big difference between the two of them um i did listen to the score in its entirety preparing for this review and my thoughts on the score are very actually surprisingly positive because last last week there wasn't a lot of score to split there was some there but not like a traditional theatrical score whereas this one feels more of that typical theatrical score where they have a lot of themes incorporated into it so this time around, I surprisingly was shocked by how much I actually ended up liking the score for Glass. So it's not, I'm not going to say it's anything that I would put above what James Newton Howard has done, but I do think it is a very solid score overall. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I would also say I do really like the look of this film. Uh, the director of photography is Mike Geolakis, who is kind of an up and coming guy who's done stuff with horror before. I noticed he was the uh, mm -hmm. cinematographer for It Follows. And also this year he did it with us, with Jordan Peele. That's kind of a big, big win for him. He's worked oh. with Shyamalan and Peele. And the guy who did It Follows, he came out with a movie recently. I don't even remember what it was. I want to say The Nightingale, but don't quote me on that. Um, so, yeah, mm. I, I think the film looks pretty good. What did you think of the film? When you compare it to Split, I think Split does look cinematography-wise much better. Um, I think it. I think the way that it frames a lot of its subjects, I think, does a better job. But I won't say this movie looks. I won't say this movie looks bad because I don't think it looks bad. I think it does look good. But I do think that Split still has the upper hand in terms of visuals here. But that's to say, it's not bad. It's no, nah, just not. I just feel Split does a much better job. But when the movie came out, did critics and audiences like it? That's kind of the question. So it's kind of hard to say. Um, let me just give you the scores and we'll talk about it here. So IMDb at a 6.7, which is a little bit lower from last week. Not super low, but it's definitely lower because I mean, we noticed that Split had like a 7.2, I believe, in IMDb. Yeah, 7.3. Um, yes. But yeah, 6.7, kind of low. Metacritic at a 43, which is E. That's very average. It's well, yeah. it's actually tech Metacritic says it's average, but it's nearly close to unfavorable because I think unfavorable is like a 39. Yeah. So it's very close to being in the red. Right. Rotten Tomatoes critic score of 37% and an audience score of 69%. So audiences wow. didn't tend to like it a bit more than uh, critics do, but critics were not happy about it at 37%. It's pretty not good. <laughs> And then Letterboxd uh, 3.0, which is above average, um, not by a lot, but it is above average for Letterboxd. And so it sounds like, and what I'm seeing here, uh, audiences, oh yeah, and uh, CinemaScore has a B, yeah, um, which is about what Shaman tends to get nowadays uh, with his movies. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like audiences liked it and critics were not happy about it. It does seem that way. It seems that audiences liked it, but not it wasn't an overwhelming um, like for the film, not like Split got audiences. Right. I would dare say audiences loved Split with a 7.3, a 79% approval on Rotten Tomatoes. And audiences did give Split a B plus, very close to an A minus. So 
Um, you right. can see that critics really found this movie to be very lacking, very poor, but audiences thought it was it was fine. It was it was it was okay. Yeah. Yeah, there does seem to be a very a rather positive reaction from the audience compared to critics. Um so yeah, that overall the scores for this movie when you when you look at it from both sides kind of comes right down the middle. Uh glass seems to be from both sides when you average it out about average when you compare them. So it's interesting because yeah, last week split got very positive reactions and this week it's they've dipped they've gone back down to just okay which is interesting to me because i know we just came out of this out of this what we call the Shaman valley of the shadow of death because Shaman did a few pretty bad movies for a while and we thought after the visit and after split that we were maybe we're walking out of this but now uh, it's kind of hard to say with glass it, it i guess we won't know until the next couple of movies come out if this if we are out of the valley per se um but it Scores for Glass are looking not what I was expecting. I was expecting to be them to be a lot higher, but they're not, which is surprising to me. Yeah, I mean, it's a shocking drop from a 77%, which I believe was, yeah, 77% certified fresh critical yeah. critic rating from Rotten Tomatoes, and it drops down to a, a measly 37% from critics and 62 Metascore to 43 Metascore. So, yeah, absolutely. Critics, um, this is a sharp drop critically where an audience is still thought it was OK. And it's interesting because um, Split has a higher approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes than Unbreakable um, by 7%. Interesting. I actually didn't uh, didn't really realize that. Yeah, Unbreakable was 70%, whereas Split is a 77%. So let that be... Let that soak in, listeners, as we approach our review that um, audiences thought it was like good, but definitely not great. Yes. And and critics thought it was bad. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, critics were not very happy with this one, it looks like. Well, listeners, if you haven't seen Glass and you don't want the movie spoiled for you, go ahead and click pause right now. Go ahead and check out the film. Come back and click play, and we'll be ready to talk about it. 19 years have passed since the events of Unbreakable, and David Dunn, played by Bruce Willis, has become known as the Overseer, a vigilante who protects the streets of Philadelphia by the aid of his son, Joseph, who is reprised by Spencer Treat Clark from Unbreakable. They get word that there is a killer on the loose who tends to target young girls, which happens to be Kevin, played by James McAvoy, from Split, who has been roaming the streets since the events of Split. David and Kevin, also known as the Beast, meet when David finds four cheerleaders chained to a table in an abandoned warehouse. They both realize that, they, that neither can kill the other, but are caught by Dr. Staple, played by Sarah, Sarah Paulson. Dr. Staple has caught not just David and Kevin, but also Elijah, reprised by Samuel L. Jackson. The doctor uh, says that she is trying to help the three of them get over their delusions that superheroes are real. She tries to give them a reasonable explanation to the things that they, seem, uh, they see as superhuman. That night, however, Elijah breaks out of his room and approaches Kevin and tells him he'll break everyone out of here tomorrow. However, the next morning, Elijah is brought in for a lobotomy after being caught leaving his room. But Elijah had outsmarted the doctors and had sabotaged the machine that would give him the lobotomy. And so what they thought was a successful surgery ended up not doing anything at all. So after his lobotomy, he ends up killing a nurse and ends up escaping again. And he also breaks out Kevin slash the beast. And 
plays with David, telling him that they are going to Osaka Tower, the tallest building in Philadelphia, where he'll show the world that superheroes exist, and expects David to come after them, once again to hopefully reiterate his plan of showing the world that superheroes exist. Elijah's mom, Mrs. Price, reprised by Carolyn Woodard, Casey, reprised by Anya Taylor-Joy, and Joseph, all arrive at the hospital at the same time the three break out. David and the Beast fight once again, but like before, they are evenly matched. Joseph convinces the Beast that his father did not leave him, but he was on the same train that David was on, the one that crashed. This causes the Beast to turn on Elijah, flipping him out of his wheelchair, mortally wounding him. But Elijah counterpoints him, saying that if they were, if it weren't for him, the Beast would never have existed. The Beast then turns against David and starts attacking David, throwing him into a tank of water, which we know is his weakness from Unbreakable. David breaks out of the tank, and the Beast begins to run before he being stopped by Casey, who brings Kevin forward. However, in a turn of events, Dr. Staples' intentions were different than what we were led to believe. A sniper shoots Kevin, while another armed guard drowns David in a puddle. Dr. Staple, Dr. Staple explains to David the reason why all this is happening. She's a part of a secret organization whose job it is to remove those with superhuman powers from the world because it is unfair for them to hold such power. David, Kevin, and Elijah all die in the parking lot as Dr. Staple has the security cam footage erased. Or so they thought. Elijah was one step ahead of her once again and had streamed the entire parking lot event to a private network. He never planned on attacking the tower. Casey, Joseph, and Mrs. Price upload the footage to prove to the world that superhumans do exist as credits roll. But not before Malka Wahlberg and Paul Giamatti across the screen bringing the whole thing together. Not it really, but it's it sounds like that's almost where it could go at the end of this. <laughs> okay, I when you said that, I thought I because I did I fast forwarded through the credits and I thought, wait a minute, did Alan see something that I didn't? <laughs> but yeah, you're right. I'm kind of waiting for the Shyamalan verse to occur. Yep, because there are bits and pieces throughout his movies where I'm like, if he wanted to, he could easily probably tie all of them together in some some way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and then the last shot where it's in the, I think it's the Philadelphia, Philadelphia Union Station, they did, the happening was shot in this location. Oh. Um, this is where one of the scenes take place. So I was, that's where I got the idea. Was what if Mark Wahlberg just walked across the screen? Because like the last shot is like a zoom out of the whole area. So I was wondering, <laughs> I was waiting for it to happen almost. I was waiting for Mark Wahlberg just walk across the screen to bring everything together. I but wish, that never happened, of course. I wish yeah. Wahlberg just popped up and looked at the screen and just said, it's happening. And that oh, that'd be name. great. And that would actually, I think people would have even liked the movie even more. That would be great. Because Shyamalan totally, would totally be poking fun at himself. But alas, <laughs> nothing of the kind happens. Right. But the one thing that I do think Shyamalan achieves probably best of all with this movie is I think he does make this feel like a true sequel not only to Split but also to Unbreakable which is very I would say it's probably very difficult to achieve that considering this came out like at least 17 years it's it's almost been two decades since Unbreakable came out I believe right. I, it maybe it maybe it has been two decades I can't re quite recall but nevertheless, making it feel like this really does connect is very hard. Um, the only other movie that I can think of that's really done that well is Denis Villeneuve's Blade Runner 2049, which right. we haven't brought that up in a while, so I felt like we probably should <laughs> bring that up. Uh, but 
that is another example of bridging two films together that take that were done decades apart. Right. Yeah, it is surprising that and it seems interesting too at the end of the split when we see that ending and David Dunn is now being brought into this universe in some kind of a way. Uh, it seemed kind of strange, but at the same time, somewhat fitting for David Dunn to be in that movie because the Unbreakable is about you know a man who literally can't break a bone um, or really even get sick. And then you also have the Beast who uh, can transform and like fa- change his physiology to be somewhat of that same kind of a thing where he is super strong and he is as tough as nails, almost as much as David is. So it seems kind of odd, but yet fitting for David Dunn to show up at the end of Split and then also have a movie where these two do face off and you get to see what exactly happens when an untoppable force meets an unmovable object in this film. Uh, I do wish they did it more often, and we'll kind of get into that a bit later, but it is kind of interesting to see these two characters who Shaman has made up and has written, surprisingly enough, for the same movie, but they end up being split into two, um, then write them into the same movie finally after so many years. It has, I think the, I think the, uh, I think it had been 19 years roughly um, in real time since Unbreakable came out to win split shows. Yeah, and the other thing is, the film is called Glass because Unbreakable mainly focused on David, Split mainly focused on Kevin, what mm-hmm. Beast, whatever you want to call him. And this film is supposed to be focusing on Mr. Glass, Samuel right. L. Jackson's character. But the movie starts off with reintroducing us briefly to uh, Kevin, to James McAvoy's character. Right. And then we jump into Bruce Willis's character. And I thought it was really cool. They brought back his son, Spencer Treat Clark, who, as far as I can tell, really hasn't done much acting, hasn't been in the limelight um, since his big role in Unbreakable. So mm-hmm. it's really cool to see the father and son team back up. I don't know why um, Robin Wright didn't come back to reprise her role. I understand in the film they wrote her out as passing away from leukemia. Right technically her character is in a flashback but that's not her right um that's just some lady standing in for her um nevertheless we and then we do get time between david and kevin and i like all of that um and then we think mr glass has gone into a catatonic state for some reason we have no reason to know why he would until over a little over i checked the time a little over an hour into the movie does Mr. Glass really become operational and and speak for the first time, which is right. a really surprising. And um, I would say that's a pretty gutsy move to do that to your title character. Oh, yeah. And especially an actor whose name is Samuel L. Jackson, not right. to give him a speaking line until an hour into your movie, mm-hmm. which is about halfway because this movie, I think, is about two hours, 10 minutes, which I think it's, is the longest Shyamalan movie that we have. Yeah, it's the longest. Yeah. So it's surprising to me that you know, and now it makes sense in how the movie plays out, but it is surprising to me that probably one of the biggest actors in Hollywood today, Samuel L. Jackson, doesn't get a line until, yeah, way into almost halfway through the movie. That is surprising to me. The other thing that struck me as funny, and I didn't even put it together, is how at least two of these actors are are big parts of other superhero franchises. Samuel L. Jackson plays Nick Fury right. in all of the Marvel movies. And James McAvoy is 
Professor X in the X-Men films. Um, and I think that's just that's to his testament how fantastic of a job he does really transforming himself in this role. He's bald in both yep. performances, but in this one, he is this visceral, muscular, very rageful, scary uh, man that you don't want to get in the way of. Whereas in X-Men, he is a quiet, contemplative British, you know, n guy that uses his mind um, very opposite roles. But there was a special feature where. James McAvoy was talking with him, right? Shyamalan about how he's been a part of the superhero franchise before, but he likes that Shyamalan is taking a totally different approach than like really what the Marvel and DC films are doing. Right. And then also speaking of that different approach, I'm going to go ahead and say it. I think, I think I like the ending. Um, not okay. necessarily in the fact that um, everyone dies, but kind of, I mean that in the way that what, I, what I'm trying to say is that I like the way that Shyamalan writes the ending because he subverts our expectations by killing mm -hmm. off the three main characters. He kills off the three characters that have been built up to this movie, which is a very surprising way to go about it because he does bring up a lot of, you know, comic book and superhero cliches in this movie, but then at the end kind of subverts that and, and instead of everyone surviving in the end being able to move on with their lives like what happens in marvel all the time um they die they end up dying for the thing that they were trying or these two they end up dying in the end which is surprising to me that shaman would even go that direction because we know that unbreakable at least up until this point has been a pretty beloved and kind of cult classic movie so it's surprising to take that bring it back and then just immediately stop it right there at the end it's a pretty bold move i would say yeah, it's definitely a bold move, but one that absolutely makes sense because Shyamalan has grounded this franchise in realism while yep. at the same time bringing in these quasi-supernatural elements with David, who can bench press a lot, and the Beast, who can supposedly stop bullets. But the thing that I do like is there's always these explanations as to why they're not that spectacular like they said right. the reason the bullets didn't go through is because the the shells were really old and um the bars were really brittle so they were able to bend them more easily that way so i think he does a good job of subverting our expectations throughout the whole movie as to these people really aren't superheroes they're just super insane and give themselves these delusions of grandeur but since you did bring up the end i liked that everyone died in the end because honestly that's the realistic approach right like i mean when you when you see all this stuff and people are falling from great heights and all these other movies all these people should be dead or when they get shot or ejected into space or or just these fantastical things happen sorry they're dead but right. no because it's a superhero movie they're not um but i did like that they all died the one thing that i really didn't like was I felt David's death to be incredibly anticlimactic yeah. by being drowned in like, I don't know, five inches of water in a pothole. Right. And his son is, they allow his son to run up to him right after he's been drowned. I just, I don't know. That really didn't work for me. I was really shocked about that. That that felt anticlimactic. Yeah, I think, and I don't know if we're wanting to get into criticisms quite yet, but I I think sure. my one well, my one of my main issues with this movie is how kind of anticlimactic it ended up being. Even though I did and did like the ending and how it does finish up, I think because Shyamalan tries to ground this in realism, he also 
opens the door to it being anticlimactic because he doesn't really want to go too far beyond supernatural and like into what would be, I guess, considered the cliche superhero movie, right? But he's also trying to keep it grounded. But what he's trying to do at the same time is I think because he's trying to keep it grounded and doesn't want to make it, you know, the cliche superhero movie, I think he kind of accidentally and inadvertently makes it anticlimactic because even though the ending does happen all in a parking lot, I didn't feel like this was the final battle that these three characters could have and then make it justified for them to die in the end. I feel like there need to be something, I, a bit, I guess, a bit more personal than what we end up having here. Yeah, I feel the exact same way. But before I talk more about that, like two other compliments that I have is I did find all of the performances to be good all around, including this new lady, their new doctor. I, I liked her role of trying to break them down mentally and trick them. And I really did actually like the retcon of Kevin's dad being on the train just a few rows down from David Dunn. And then uh, Mr. Glass saying, can't you see like the hero and villain are born from the same circumstances, from the same situation, but one, they each go in different directions. And I really did love Mr. Glass's very puppet master role there at the end, where he is kind of this um, meta narrator where he's saying, ah, oh, yes, the classic turn where this hap where the villain begins to side with the good guy. And even his mom is like, I thought you weren't supposed to die in limited editions. And he's like, this isn't a limited edition. This is I can't remember what he said, but it's just kind of weird and twisted to watch him. He's basically like a five year old kid who is getting to watch his toys come to life and duke it out. And he gets to see his life's passion come to fruition, even if that means he dies at the end. He doesn't really die with a complaint. Right. Um, I, I really liked that. I liked all of that as well. Yeah, it's kind of, you get this feeling not too long after he starts to really start, after he starts to play a bigger role in the story, when he starts talking and stuff, that he has a lot more control over what's happening than what seems than what we're being shown like he we know that he can break out of his cell no problem right he does that, i think two or three times so what's interesting to me is that we do know that he has full con almost as if he has full control over these two characters but is waiting for the right opportunity to to manipulate them and to actually make them do what they need to do because at the very end of the story we come to find out he had control the whole time like he knew exactly what was going on and that the he ended up uh more or less doing what he said he was going to do he was going to show the world that superheroes exist but he didn't do it himself he did it through what would i guess we can be considered the sidekicks of the story he goes through them and has them be the ones who show the world who that superheroes exist i like that aspect that mr glass fittingly enough this movie's called glass is ends up being more of a main character than what I was expecting out of this movie, I guess. And at least what the movie was giving to me to begin with, because I didn't think that he was going to play that big of a role because he just wasn't saying anything for a long time. Um, and then, of course, yeah, that mastermind puppet master like role that he plays, and I'm more, I'm more subtle than what I was even expecting that too, ends up playing, ends up being a big idea there, especially in the very end. I did end up enjoying how, I guess, Mr. Glass's character was written and how he manipulates and moves the chess pieces around in the story to his own willing. We just don't know how he's going to do it. I think that's probably the bigger twist of the story of this movie is Mr. Glass and how much control he actually had. 
Yeah, and Jackson and Willis, I think, do a great job stepping back into their roles that they yes. played almost 20 years ago. And we learn at the end of Unbreakable that uh, Mr. Glass was the puppet master the whole time as well. Right. Which I loved that twist at the end of that film. Um, the other thing I liked was that I just remembered was how they re how they introduced Casey into the story and used her as well. She is pivotal to Kevin's redemption. So I'm glad they, they followed up with her story arc and didn't just drop her off from split because they very easily could have. But I think for continuity's sake, that really helped. And David has a son and Mr. Glass has his mom like he always had. And right. then so... Kevin needs somebody as well, so he has Casey, and the way she uses compassion and love and forgiveness to uh, bring out Kevin's humanity and how Kevin holds the light all the way till the end and that redemption, I found that to be pretty touching, and very that part was very satisfying for me to see that character redeemed from a very dark uh, past and very heinous, heinous actions. Right. Yeah, it's interesting, too, that... Um how we do get to see how the three's weaknesses are kind of pushed against them when they're in their cells. Like we know that if they try to do anything funky and try to escape, then they'll be hit with their weakness. We know that David's weakness is water. Um, we find out in this movie that uh, the beasts or Kevin's weakness is flashing lights that kind of bring out other personalities, but it comes in as a twist a little bit later that his, re his real weakness is actually love and compassion and physical touch. Um, and I ended up liking that because, yeah, it's interesting, too, because it's Casey who's the one who brings that out. Um, that would kind of be the last person you would expect to bring that out of a uh, bring that out of this character because of what happened in Split. And then, of course, Mr. Glass, that's kind of everything. But, yeah, I did end up doing that a little bit more than I because originally I was I didn't know. Originally, I was thinking, okay, well, is that it then? Is that his weakness, just bright flashing lights to bring out other personalities? And while that's, yeah, that's true, the, the real weakness, I guess, of this uh, supervillain is love and compassion, which I think, yeah, I think that does a really good, I think they, Shaman writes it in really well and does a really good job at incorporating that into the story and having that redemption arc of the two's relationship that you maybe wouldn't have even, even expected there to be a redemption arc there in, in the first place. My first disappointment, though, comes fairly early on in the film when David and the Beast are fighting, and I think it's a pretty good fight. I like how he rescues those girls. Um, it's a little weird, though, I guess, that David is dubbed the Overseer, and he's going around just beating people up in their homes, the beating the bad guys up, I guess, to, to teach them a lesson? I don't know. Um, anyways, but when they do go colliding out of the window together and they both fall on the ground and they're about to go at it, just this awesome, you know, it's going to be electric when they fight, but then surprise this, uh, the doctor is there with her flashing lights and an entire SWAT team. And I thought that's just far too uh, happenstance for her to be right there. Maybe that's the entrance they're going to go through and they're going to go to out and be prepared. That just felt too contrived to me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I absolutely agree there. And I would say my a lot of my, I guess, criticisms or disappointments come from Dr. Staple herself, because Dr. Staple, from the very beginning, 
kind of feels like there is more to her character than what the movie is letting on, which we kind of find at the end. Her plan was to actually actually get rid of these characters, like just try and remove that idea that they are superhuman from them and then go to more extreme, uh, more, go to more extremes as she needs to. Um, that was no surprise to me when it was revealed that she's actually the bad guy the whole time. Uh, we, I kind of had that idea that maybe she is the bad guy from the very, like from the moment she was introduced to the story, because yeah, it seems way too happenstance for her to be in this moment right now um, to capture these two characters. It's, it just seems way too contrived for that to be even plausible. Her character, and we'll kind of maybe just, just uh, talk about her a little bit later, but her character I feel is a bit weaker than what I guess I'm, I've seen Shyamalan do before with a lot of side characters. Typically, I've, from what I've noted, he does a pretty good job of at least making the side characters interesting to watch. Even if they aren't in a good movie like The Happening, they are still interesting characters to watch. Whereas in this movie, all the side characters kind of feel boring and kind of one-dimensional, almost all across the board. It's a very strange, I guess, movie to see Shyamalan do after every other movie that I have seen him write in cast and direct. Yeah, not only the characters, but I would also say just the arc of the story. And mm -hmm. I guess that ties into the arc of the characters in general is I feel like we're never really progressing as they're within this asylum. Oh, um, yeah. Once, yeah. Once they're institutionalized, I feel like the plot just comes to a halt. And then we're just basically buying time until we know the inevitable climax of all three of them coming together and duking it out has to take place. Which, I mean, I, I liked that taking place in front of the hospital, like we already mentioned, and mm -hmm. the comic book ending is subverted. They're not going to blow up Osaka Tower. It's just going to be th the real triumph comes in the footage and fighting and how uh, the doctor had her own downfall. Um, but yeah, like I said, um, I think this is the second time I've seen the movie. I watched it twice. And upon second viewing, I know there's not much meat to the second act here. So it gets a little sleep inducing um, throughout it. There's there's really not much to pay attention to. Oh, yeah. No, there, once they get into the asylum, into the hospital, this week almost comes to a complete dead stop. It's very odd because this movie is two hours and 10 minutes long, yet spends almost an hour of its time doing basically nothing. It's very, very odd. The second act is I act is easily the weakest act of the movie, which usually the second act is supposed to be not only the longest, but also the thing that builds up to the third act. So it's and that may be why the third act, I feel, is not as not as climactic as I felt it could have been, because there isn't a lot of really, I guess, intentional and meaningful setup to get to that act there at the very end of the third act when they all meet up in the in the parking lot and actually duke it out for the last time and yeah this second act is very very weak and surprisingly boring i was wondering i was when i got about an hour into the movie i looked at the i looked at the time and i was like you can't be kidding me there's an hour left of this <laughs> so it's it's surprising to me and Probably one of my bigger critiques, too, is this just the second act in general. It's just really boring. Nobody goes anywhere. Nothing really happens. You could skip big portions of this movie and wouldn't be lost at all. There, Nothing would have really have changed significantly. And you can pick up the pieces as you watch the scene um, after you've already fast forwarded. It's nothing that I would consider to be really worth the time being in this movie. A lot of this feels like it could just be cut out and save a lot more time and make it a bit more interesting. 
Well, you may be surprised to learn that the original cut of Split, according to Shyamalan himself, was three hours and 20 minutes long. Of Split? Oh, uh, excuse me, of Glass. Okay, that's surprise. That is, I can see that. <laughs> I can see that considering what we have here now. I can see with that three hours and 20 minutes, uh, that's no surprise. I can't even, uh, it's, it. I guess it doesn't surprise me, but I can't even imagine watching that cut of the film. And oh, yeah. No, I'm with you on that one. I have no idea what he would talk about. <laughs> I have no idea. I do have a I, well, I guess I do have a bit of an idea because on the DVD, he did include quite a, a lot of deleted scenes that I did watch all of them. And honestly, I can't tell you uh, any of them recount any of them to you because they were rightful cuts that should be made. It was yeah. all very uh, fluffy sidetracking stuff. The only thing that I actually liked better was the alternate opening for the film. The alternate opening was um, showing them setting up the hospital that they would be that they would be used in. And then it would cut to um, Kevin and the cheerleaders. But Shyamalan was basically saying how he wanted to show how this was all going to take place in one environment. And show all this really mysterious equipment being brought in all very mysterious and it has that keeping time music like i mentioned um and then it would come back to that and come full circle or whatever so the alternate opening is pretty good the rest of the deleted scenes were rightfully cut um and then just to give you an insight into my reaction when i first saw this movie i first watched it a little over two months ago i really had that sinking feeling once they were in the hospital and it kept going there and i thought ah this is it i'm definitely disappointed because i love split and mm -hmm. i think unbreakable is a great film and then i was i was slowly being let down throughout the entire film that we really weren't going anywhere and then it really solidified for me when they made the choice to have david's exit be drowned yep. in a couple inches of water and I thought everybody else's exit was great. And then we can talk about, if you want, the Illuminati twist. What did you make of that whole? I call it the Illuminati twist. I don't remember what they call their society. Basically, they're yeah. the rulers of the universe. They're their secret society. Right. So I mentioned earlier that the twist that the doctor has is not a uh, not that big of a surprise to me. So when I, I I wasn't thinking that, oh, she's a part of the secret organization. I just kind of had an idea that she her motives are not going to be as, I guess, pure, pure. as she <laughs> thinks they're going to be as, as they, the movie is leading us to believe that they are. So yes. when it's revealed that she is a part of yeah the Illuminati, then I'm just like, OK, I'm confused because at, in some points of this movie, Shyamalan subverts our expectations by presenting what would be considered a cliche and then going the opposite direction, namely the ending when all three main characters die, right? That's probably the biggest, best example I can give where you think they're going to survive and then all of a sudden they almost all die almost pretty close to the same time. Um, I was surprised by that. Then when we have the secret ending where the, this character is actually a part of a secret organization, it was like, now wait a minute, I thought we were subverting expectations and not really going too much into the cliche. Why are we rolling into the cliche now? It just felt like the movie, especially what had been leading up to it, what it should, has been pretty original and taking being subversion, being subverting and how we think it's going to go, but then doesn't go that direction with just the last two movies in general in the kind of leading up to, to this point. It was just like, okay, well then why isn't this ending with the Dr. Staple more, I guess, original 
than this ending that we get here where she's a part of this Illuminati gang. It's just, it seems weird and kind of kind of dumb in my own opinion that this is the ending that Dr. Staple gets. It's no surprise again, but it's just dumb that this is the ending. This cliche, I'm a part of some bigger organization ending that she gets is actually the ending that we do have. I guess I didn't find it to be too cliche, but what I guess I found to be more so cliche is that Shyamalan doesn't really do anything with it. Yeah. Aside just to just a twist, just to make it just to have the Shyamalan twist is what I'm trying to say. Right. And that's where I was really let down is when we do get the twist, she's a part of this organization and she's been having a go with them the whole time and with us as the audience. I thought, oh, okay, well, I guess that makes some sense. But then the real issue comes in with the final twist and the final ending where Mr. Glass had been streaming the footage the whole time and it's going to go viral. The only problem is there's not really any stakes to the outing of the Illuminati organization because they're not going to be outed. I understand she failed in her mission, but it's like, who cares? And in regardless, who cares that they've been like, why do they even shut down these superheroes for 10,000 years to begin with? It's just I find all of that to just be very underwhelming and uh, very underused. And I would even say underdeveloped. This just seems like Shyamalan threw that at the end there. And I kept waiting and waiting for an even greater twist to come, particularly Mm -hmm. maybe David coming back and and proving her wrong or something, but that wasn't there. And so watching David's son and Mr. Glass's mom and Casey, this unlikely trio, just sit in the train station and just drink their coffees, sip their lattes and watch the watch it pop up on the internet. That's cliche and very uh, boring and just a total letdown. Oh yeah. And I'll tell you what's really underdeveloped. These side characters are crazy underdeveloped (laughs) because, okay, Casey, at least Casey has had some up until this point. She was in a movie that took place no more than three weeks before this movie takes place. So we at least have something to her character. The problem is she does absolutely nothing for a good portion of this movie, that, that hour that I can that I complain that nothing happens, she does hardly anything in. Um, Joseph and Mrs. Price are, I think, probably the worst or the best examples of underdeveloped characters because Joseph is brand new um, from Unbreakable, so a lot has changed since Unbreakable, and mm-hmm. it's clear that he's a very different character from then. But they don't give him enough time for that connection between him and his dad to really be solidified between the two of them, and then have the ending where his dad dies to be emotionally impacting. Same with Mrs. Price, which I think is an even better example as to when her son is dying. It's almost as if she's somewhat happy about it because she's. Yeah. It's not like she's like particularly sad about it though but because she's talking with him and almost kind of joking with him that oh i thought the hero or i thought this is supposed to happen in the comic book how they always end and then he's like no no this is not a limited edition it's almost that they're joking back and forth it's weird and it's unfortunate that these side characters who are supposed to be a, a much bigger inspiration when the ending comes and we have that them in the train station and they are sitting there watching the movie the video that they just posted go viral that that it's supposed to be a very inspirational ending kind of loses its meaning or loses its impact because these three main characters have hardly any development to them, which is strange because we have two hours and 10 minutes long and there's plenty of time 
I feel, in this third second act where they could actually be doing things that uh, actually have some kind of meaning or develop their characters and get them in, give them some kind of arc. I don't think any of them have much of an arc outside of Casey's character. No, that's exactly, you're 100% right. That's exactly why when they're sitting there at the end and they're just like, they're all like best friends now mm -hmm. and they're, they're really excited about this thing. I don't buy any of that, nor do I honestly care because Shyamalan completely forgot to do anything with these characters. These characters needed to come together like probably towards the end of the first act and then instead of spending so much dang time doing almost nothing in the hospital, they should have also cut back to these characters. And these characters needed to be not independent of each other. They right. needed to be connecting with each other. And, I mean, we get uh, flashes of David's son learning Kevin's uh, dad's secret, and then we get Mr. Glass learning that secret, which I was, I, I liked that uh suspense but then when you learn he was on the train with them i don't like oh that's that's it don't get me wrong i i do like how it ties them together it's just not as uh packs a wallop as i expected it to right but there's just always this like serendipitous convergence of these three characters at the hospital right when they need to be right when the climax is going to happen right they're all going to come in and testify on behalf of their uh person who is being imprisoned but yeah you're right i i mean i'm just really shocked that we really don't spend that much time with these characters particularly during the second act yeah and this is gonna sound kind of strange but a lot of this movie honestly feels like lady in the water like a like a lady in the water repeat to me mm. because we have a lot of these like mostly with the film critic character from lady in the water where he his character kind of goes out where he's just like oh that's right. I forgot in the movie, this always happens, but not unless this happens, which means I'm dead, which means yeah. I'm actually dead, but I'm actually dead and he dies. It feels like that, but like almost, especially in towards the climax, like that for like the whole movie, because there really isn't a lot of subtlety to this movie. Shaman doesn't really do much to mask what his, what the message actually is. He does a pretty good job with that in both Split and in Unbreakable, where it's not so much, in, not so in your face about it. It does a pretty good job at like leading back and letting the story present that in a way that makes it a bit more organic. This story, however, is much different than that. I don't think that this movie is very subtle at all. And it essentially just tells you the message at the very end where everyone's a superhero kind of a thing. It's just, it's so in your face and feels so leading the water like in my mind that it once again begins to lose some of its impact when I don't, and I don't have the chance to just kind of sit back and like seek my teeth into it and pull out things that I'm noticing um, that aren't so in my face. Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for Glass? I was wondering what Glass would be like before walking in and watching this movie because I had only heard one thing about it and what I heard was not good. I heard that it was some of it was on the level of so bad that it's good, mostly with the dialogue. So when I walked into it, I was like, okay, well, we'll see where how it goes. Split was pretty good. Unbreakable was pretty good. I'm excited to see what Shaman can do now that it seems that like he's returned with Split. I don't know if that's the case anymore. Um, I don't know if we ever have the return of Shyamalan, like what we had with Split or what we had with even The Visit. Because what I'm seeing here is a very, it's, a, it's, an, it's an interesting story with characters that are very well developed and could, and do, and could work very well in a story like this. 
but its execution is extremely weak. I think that's unfortunate, which is weird for me to say. And maybe it's because Split was written, most of it was written back when Unbreakable was written. So there could be that the Shyamalan that we thought was, that had come out of this pit might not be the same Shyamalan as before. We, I don't know. I, that might be an answer for future movies. So at the end of the day, no, I think Glass is unfortunately a very poor movie from Mr. Shyamalan. Now, it's not as bad as the two that we consider The Valley, uh, Last Airbender and After Earth, but... In The Happening. When I In The Happening, yes. But at the same time, when I said it feels a lot like Lady in the Water to me, I think that my score and my thoughts on it are floating more towards that than what I feel like this movie should have ever gotten towards. So my score, uh, four out of 10 is not going to be recommended for me. I don't see me ever watching this movie again. I wouldn't. It, music's good, but outside of that, I don't see anything of me dragging me back to watch it again. Glass is mostly good, but definitely an underwhelming conclusion to the Unbreakable trilogy. I like the way Shyamalan brings his leads together, but none of them do anything of true impact to make the stakes worthwhile. There's not much else to say about this movie, except that it's a eh, decent, albeit soft, conclusion that seems to bring up the possibility of a fourth film without any firm finality. For me, Glass received 6 stars out of 10 with a weak recommend. Originally, I gave it a 7 when I saw it um, in September because I thought it wasn't too bad. I didn't think it was great either, but now that I've been able to rewatch it and process it more, I will recommend it on the basis of watching it together as a trilogy. I think you can have a decent enough time doing that. But yeah, um, after seeing this film twice, there's really no reason for me to come back to it. But still, I don't think it's that bad of a movie. I just don't think it's that good in any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. So it's competent. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's and for me, I think the problem that I have with it is it's just very unimpactful and very oh, sure. underdeveloped. And that's what causes me to pull away from it is I don't really care about any of these characters. Whereas in the past two movies that I've been leading up to this, I've cared a lot about its main characters and what and what it's trying to say with that. I think they do I think Sean does a very good job at building well-rounded characters out of a very dark place. But when it comes to this movie, it feels like there is very little progress being made off of what has already been built. So it feels almost like a waste of time to me than anything else. I don't I don't know it it had this movie been done better, then maybe I feel like this would have been a worthy conclusion to these characters. But I don't think that what we get here is necessarily as fulfilling as what I was expecting. Yeah, and like in some ways, I like that we're struggling as well with the characters with the fact that maybe none of them are superheroes, but they're supervillains. They don't really have any extraordinary powers, but that right. doesn't necessarily make for a very exciting or gripping movie necessarily. And neither is there much drama to it. Like I said, Unbreakable is a drama. Split is a thriller. This has elements of action. Some thriller elements, Shyamalan describes it as um, within the superhero genre, but it's also still a thriller. I'm not sure this movie really knows what it wants to be mm -hmm. because it's trying to bring the genres from its uh, separate films 
and kind of mash it all together and then smooth it out with a rolling pin um, in order to give a presentable picture. Right. But unfortunately, it just really doesn't um, come out that well. That being said, this um, is, uh, as far as Shyamalan goes, I'll give you my rankings of all of his movies here in just a second, but this one hits about the middle of the road for me, actually, so he's done a lot worse right. than this. Yeah, for me... In reality, it is pretty close to the middle. Um, I don't know how close, but relatively close to the middle because there are a lot of not good Shyamalan movies that we've talked about. But it isn't as bad as the happening after Earth, Last Airbender. Um, for me, it's pretty close to maybe Lady in the Water, like um, in terms of what I think it, what it, in terms of what my feelings are toward it. I, I find it to be better than The Visit. I don't think... Um, Not by much, though. So in terms of it being better than The Visit, I think The Visit is better than this. Um, but yeah, like you said, probably not by a lot, but by enough that I would say that it is, for me, easily The Visit is better than this one. I think The Visit has a better story in terms of the twists and um, some of the characters are a bit more interesting and it's definitely a little more frightening and gripping. Right. But I, once again, I think they suffer from a similar syndrome where the second act becomes such a dip that it really, I've lost all interest by the time the third act rolls around. Um, even though the visit might have a better third act, but to me it doesn't, the visit feels a little more cliche in terms of that doesn't feel as original. Right. Um, but regardless, here is my uh, list from from number one to number 14, number one being um, my favorite, number 14 being my least favorite. Split, The Sixth Sense, Unbreakable, The Village, Signs. I threw in Stuart Little because I did review it and Shyamalan wrote it. Glass, The Visit, After Earth, the Last Airbender, Praying with Anger, Lady in the Water, Wide Awake, and The Happening. And here's my list. Sixth Sense, Unbreakable, Signs, Split, The Village, The Visit, Glass, Lady in the Water, After Earth, The Last Airbender, Wide Awake, Praying with Anger, and The Happening. And those last few, especially from Lady in the Water on, were kind of hard to figure out where exactly they landed on my list. Uh, it's kind of hard to say which ones are worse than the others in my mind. So the question becomes, is there actually going to be a fourth movie to, I guess, the Unbreakable Trilogy? Um, no, there won't be. Uh, I looked it up. Shaolin himself is not really looking to expand the universe. He said he's not really even looking to make a cinematic universe at all. Um, so he said that there will be no sequels in the future for this kind of a movie and yeah, no cinematic universe in his mind that he's going to try and go for, for this franchise. Gotcha. Well, I, I can see why he wants to move on to different projects and in his mind, yeah. this is a wrap up in my in mind. It's just not a, in some ways it's satisfying in other ways. I think he tried too hard at the end. Um, and he sprinted 
too much exertion at the finish line and tripped there. He stumbled. Right. But this is not, even though this is the end as of right now of our Shyamalan retrospective, this is not the end in finality because we will be coming back. Shyamalan isn't done. Um, his his newest project is actually coming out this year. So Shyamalan has two projects coming out in the same year, um, which is a first for him, except this one is a TV show. Um, his new Apple mm -hmm. Plus show called Servant. It did come out two weeks ago on Thanksgiving Day. And uh, judging by the trailer, it looks incredible. I have not got to watch the uh, TV show yet. Um, I'm not an Apple Plus subscriber, but... It looks very, um, very twisted and horrifying and very intriguing. So I'm I'm actually excited to watch that eventually. Yeah, I'm curious to see what that one's all about. I don't know if I'll ever get a chance to watch it inside Apple TV Plus. But from the looks of things, um, a lot of the things that have been uh, been made in-house with Apple have been looking pretty, pretty good. Uh, I haven't heard too much about really any of the shows that have come out of it or what people are thinking about them. But from what I've been seeing, they do look relatively good in quality. So I wonder what Servant's going to be like. I haven't really seen anything on it other than I know that he's going to be directing a lot of the episodes. So I'll be curious to see how that ends up, what the, I guess, what the verdict is when it finally releases and all of it's out. Judging by the trailers, it looks like it'll be more of an interesting story than what we got here with Glass. But his next directorial film is titled Labor of Love. That has been more recently announced um, from the description I saw. It doesn't seem to have anything to do with anything like too supernatural or foreboding. Um, that could change, of course. Um, we just have a preliminary uh, plot uh, statement. Otherwise, he has two upcoming projects uh, that are called Eleven Little Indians, Reincarnate, and two untitled projects for universal one will come out in 2021 and the other in 2023 mm. so as of right now looks like we're going to be uh, keeping on this Shyamalan retrospective um at least another four years into the future three years yeah i guess so yeah maybe he'll get back onto the every two-year cycle um I guess we'll see what happens in the next coming years if that will remain the same. If we if he keeps for putting out a movie every two years, we'll be back every two years, I guess, to talk about the new Shyamalan. Yeah, I'm very interested as well, because some of this looks like he may be moving away from the more so horror or thriller genre. I could be completely wrong with that, because clearly Servant is well fitted within that genre, those genres. But he his movies he may be wanting to do something different which he's done plenty of different things he's not just stuck stuck with the horror genre but as of late that's the genre that's propelled him back into everyone's good graces right as of right now i don't know but um i'm glad we didn't end this movie review series on a really sour note i know we're both not too um happy with the way that glass ended but at least it's not like the lows of the happening or the airbender or after earth i'm glad that it's not ending on like one of those movies this would be a very unfortunate ret retrospective but he has a chance to change that as well with his upcoming films he's got quite a few of them on his docket so i'll be interested to see those and definitely come back excited to review those with alan 
Listeners, thank you so much for joining us on this incredible retrospective series that has taken us across the entire year. We've reviewed all of Shyamalan's 13 films that he has directed. It's been really cool to finally say that uh, we've seen them all. We've really given them uh, inspective review for all of those. And it's neat to see the highs and lows of Shyamalan finally and know what that's all about. But listeners, we want to hear from you. So the question after the show is, is Glass a satisfying conclusion to the end of the Unbreakable Trilogy? I know that 69% of you on Rotten Tomatoes did enjoy this film. And we're just curious to see what you think. Um, because we did enjoy Elements, but once again, there was some disappointment to it as well. So it's it's fairly mixed, I would say. Alan, thanks for joining me. Sure thing. So next week, we won't have our usual Monday release. That's because we will be releasing the Christmas special on Christmas Day, and it's going to be National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. That is such a hilarious film. It'll be a blast to review a movie that a lot of people really love to watch around Christmas time. And then after that, we will be uh, debuting our filmmaker special uh, some of those details are still under wraps for now, so you'll have that to look forward to at the very beginning of 2020. But we will see you next week, listeners, with National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Hey listeners, it's Corbin. Don't forget to check out the exciting links in the description below that will connect you with more great movie reviews for your listening pleasure and our YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter page. And of course, our official website where you can read great articles and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Also, if you want exclusive bonus content such as extra movie reviews, movie commentaries, and our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, plus more, then check out our Patreon page. It's a great way to help keep this show free, and it gives you great content that's yours to keep. All of that and more is found in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe whether you're on YouTube, Apple, Google, or Stitcher, or your favorite podcast service. And while you're at it, please leave us a five-star review so other movie lovers can more easily find our podcast. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. So don't forget to share with your friends and family, and we'll see you next week, listeners. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide. Yeah, I don't think for me that's necessarily the case. I think the visit is better than this movie. Um, and that's mostly because of it, most because that movie looks good and sounds really good. It's got a good score and a, I mean, it's got Roger Deakins as a cinematographer. So, of course, it looks great. Um, that's one of the things that I think really puts it above uh, glass for me is just 
by its cinematic quality alone. Yes, just to we we could always change this later, but Roger Deakins didn't do the visit. He didn't. No, it's Marcy Alberti. Wait, what? Did I say the visit? Oh, yeah. I meant okay. I meant to say the village. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I meant he to did, say. Okay, did. I thought I heard you say the village, so I was like, oh yeah, it's uh, okay. Um, Wide awake and the happening. I'll have to record this because I didn't write down a list for me. <laughs> Letterbox. I totally forgot until you were talking about it, and I was like, oh. I didn't do that. I so. kept I've I've been keeping a list this whole time on Letterbox. So that's gotcha. Why. Okay. okay, I'll I'll re-record I'll record this after the podcast and then I'll just add it in later. Sure.